0: This episode of Stage Brother is slightly unusual, in that it is not a review of theatrical work, but rather a promotional episode for a book that I have written, which is coming out in a couple of weeks' time, called Precarious Spectatorship, Theatre and Image in an Age of Emergencies, which has been published by Manchester University Press, and I've agreed to do this episode as part of the promotional material for the launch. Um, I do feel a bit weird about that, but... um, I figured that it was appropriate because a lot of the ideas in that book are ideas that were trialed first on this podcast. So we did episodes about storytelling, about fighting with images, about the name of terrorism, reviews of things like Vanishing Points, The Destroyed Room, Alice Birch's Anatomy of a Suicide. And these are all things that ended up being very important to the research that I conducted. And so... It made sense, in a way, to record this episode and also to say thank you to everyone who has listened to Sage Brother over the years. I know I haven't been particularly active um, recently, but I have found this podcast to be an enormously useful resource in terms of developing and also shaping the thoughts that I had about the topics of the book. Um, so I am indebted to those of you that have been listening and who've shown an interest in what I've been talking about. Um, okay, so without further ad- further ado... Welcome to Stage Brother, a podcast about theatre and performance based in Scotland. My name is Sam Haddow and you're listening to episode 29, Precarious Spectatorship. Pencil on paper and ink in your throat Why should the world give a damn what you wrote You're one more broke poet who will never go far With a tuneless piano and a painted guitar So, as with pretty much every research project that I have ever undertaken, this book started out as one thing and rapidly mutated into another. Originally, I wanted to write a book about emergencies, or rather, um, more specifically, I didn't want to write a book about emergencies. I really, really didn't. But I got annoyed that nobody else had. Um, And there are two events that kind of precipitated um, the book starting. One of them was I had a job, my first ever proper job out of doing the PhD, uh, which was at the Central School of Speech and Drama in London, and as part of my teaching responsibilities, I'd been asked to put together a research-based module for students—one three-hour lecture a week—and I had a look at the the provision that was already there, realised that what I probably should do was something on theatre and politics, but I had no clear idea how to uh, structure that, and so I was on a train from Coventry to London. Um, I think it must have been 2014, maybe. Um, It was a two hour train journey and it was a very busy train. I got on, sat at a table somehow, miraculously, opened my computer and sort of sat there with my blank screen in front of me. And then a woman uh, leant over, she was sitting opposite me, and she said, do you know that you're doing this? Which is the nervous tick that I have. Um, And I said, no, I'd I'd not realised that it was an unconscious thing. And she said, well, every time you do it, I want to slam your laptop screen down onto your fingers. Could you please stop? And I looked at her and I looked around the train. I realized that I couldn't go anywhere and that I had to sit there for two hours and panicked. And so I just wrote down the word emergency and, and was like, Oh, okay, right. Emergencies. And so I drafted this entire uh, module about, about emergencies in the space of two hours using material that I'd already generated took it to my boss. And she was like, Yep, fine. Run that module. So I ran it for a couple of years, uh, called it performing emergencies. And we looked at things like the Arab Israeli conflict, the financial crises of 2007 and beyond uh, climate change and eco catastrophes, the war on terror, And um, the students responded very well to the material and came up with a a variety of different ideas. And so I ran it the following year. Um, Now, so yeah, it must have been 2013 that I did that. Um, So in 2014, just before I was supposed to run, well, I was set to run the course again, I was sat uh, on a settee with my six-month son, six-month-year-old son on my lap. And the second event happened that precipitated this book, which was that... We were watching the Evening News, or I was watching it, he obviously wasn't. And uh, a clip from an ISIS execution video was shown. And it was, you know, very uh, familiar. There was the shaven-headed, orange jumpsuited victim on his knees next to a man wearing black, holding a knife, and the man's voice filled the room. And it, it was horrifying. And I looked at my son, and I had this thought, which was that this kid is not yet the target audience for this material, but that he will be. And I couldn't bear the thought that that this innocent child was um, was going to be targeted. And I realised that the targeting was not just by the people who'd made the propaganda. Of course, they had wanted to have their videos distributed as widely as possible. But also the people who had distributed them had their own agendas. And both of these organisations were doing something that I felt to be profoundly toxic to the spectator. So I, I thought about this and it bothered me that... Um, that nobody was really writing about or talking about the effect that the distribution of this um, that these videos had on spectators and the way that it was playing into the hands of those who'd made and distributed murder propaganda. And so I wrote a paper for a conference at the University of Leeds called... Uh, the conference was called Reframing Disaster. It was um, an anniversary of the Bhopal disaster. And uh, I went and delivered this paper. It was about the ISIS execution videos as performance. And it went down relatively well. And at that point, I kind of thought, I really don't want to work on this material for, uh, like, very long, because I thought it would probably be quite painful to do so. I talked to a colleague, and she said, no, you absolutely shouldn't. What you should do is submit it to a periodical. She suggested New Statesman and said, maybe they'll take it, and then you can have done with it and not worry about it anymore. So I submitted it to the New Statesman and uh, got nowhere. They didn't respond. And so... Uh, I, I ran the the performing emergencies module again, and this time we we included conversations about ISIS propaganda, and the response from the students, as ever, was incredibly mature, incredibly insightful, and I started thinking, well, perhaps this is something that I should be thinking more about, and then got uh, was applying for full time jobs because the job that I had at Central was it was only part time, and was uh, was awarded a job at the University of St Andrews, but part of the condition of that job was to write a book, and so I thought that. You know, I might not get the chance to write a book again, and I'd always wanted to write a book, so this was a topic that I should focus on because I thought it was important, even though I suspected it probably would be a very painful book to write. And that was the beginning of this. Um, what became Precarious Spectatorship? Now, I've been thinking about how to try to talk about an entire book in a single podcast episode, and I don't want to go on much longer than the usual half an hour runtime. Uh, so what I'm going to do is talk mostly about chapter one, which is a chapter called Enemy Image, and is a chapter that uh, is derived from that initial thought about the Islamic State propaganda, and use that as a springboard to talk more broadly about some of the issues that I discuss elsewhere in the book. So, this first chapter then. It it opens with an account of um, the 2015 Paris attacks, or what had become known as the 2015 Paris attacks, in which, on the 13th of November, nine gunmen carried out mass assassinations and they killed 130 people and they wounded 368. Um, And I'm going to quote from the book now. Um, In the aftermath of the assassinations, President Francois Hollande declared a state of emergency, which was immediately ratified by the French Parliament. This state of emergency, permitting the police and interior ministry to act without judicial approval or warrant, and allowing searches, arrests, and detainment of suspects without the need for evidence, was swiftly extended to a three-month period. By late January 2016, the Prime Minister Manuel Valls was calling for the state of emergency to be continued, in, uh, and he quotes, uh, he said, "Until we can get rid of," Daesh, under the justification that it had uh, that the um, the French state had the right to use. All means in our democracy under the rule of law to protect the French people. And then on the 10th of February 2016, the National Assembly voted in favour of an amendment to the French Constitution, which would enable any sitting president to declare a state of emergency without parliamentary approval. The amendment was shelved due to a lack of Senate approval, but the 2015 state of emergency was prolonged five times before finally expiring in November 2017. So in effect, the emergency precipitated by the 2015 Paris attacks spurred a reordering of the law to consolidate its authority beyond the contemporary threat and above the rule of democracy. Uh, End quote. So this this was happening as I was preparing this material um, in the winter of 2015 and 2016. And I was struck by the authority that was given to the state of emergency and the ways in which a state of emergency could suspend all normative criteria by which we might organize society. Um, And this is why, as I kind of went on, I realized I wanted to write about states of emergency because they confer such power that they can suspend the way that we live and that that power is frequently invoked in the modern world the ability to suspend the rules that govern us, to localise a threat, to, identi- well, to identify a threat and then to localise it, and also, crit- critically, to identify and localise those who are threatened is something that we see repeated on the news over and over and over again. As I was finishing the book, in fact, um, Donald Trump, President Trump, was attempting to declare a national state of emergency in the United States in order to build a wall separating the United States and Mexico. And when pushed on this, he said he didn't need to declare a state of emergency. He was just doing it to speed up the process, which is kind of remarkable that the the idea of a state of emergency, that thing which should be the last possible um, resort, is now something that is just a, a commonplace within the political vocabularies of the 21st century. And so... As I was writing, as I was thinking about this, I realized that this state of emergency doesn't work without a spectator. That emergencies only function if you can convince the people who are being threatened that they are being threatened, and then convince them that you have the answer, that you, are, uh, you have the ability to be able to ameliorate the state of emergency. And so therefore they confer that power upon you. Um, so emergencies need spectators. It's a very obvious point to make, but it's not one that I've seen being made elsewhere. There is obviously work that's been done in emergencies. Um, the University of Durham has um, human geographers, Ben Anderson, particularly working on um, the ways in which states, states emergency operate physically on the ground. And obviously there are uh, philosophical rationales for emergency that have been produced, the most famous of which is a book, well, a couple of books by the Italian philosopher Giorgio Agamben, um, who talks about what's often called the state of exception. The state of exception is an idea from the German philosopher Carl Schmitt. Schmitt was an active participant in the Third Reich. And the state of exception is the um, ability for the law to suspend itself in order to do something that is outside of the law. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. So I'm going to go back to ISIS now. So I started out with this chapter on ISIS, thinking about how ISIS had risen to prominence and how they had... Um, being able to affect the domestic populaces of the countries that they considered to be their enemies so powerfully, using comparably um, little effort. Like it wasn't. That, I mean, they, they did obviously stage huge um, scale attacks. The Paris attacks being probably the most prominent. But the the thing that we tend to remember Islamic State for um, visually are the propaganda videos that they released that were, you know, done by a few jihadis with sufficient technical capabilities and the willingness to commit murder and then distributed um, limitlessly on the Internet via the click of a button. And they're very good or they were very good at creating icons. And the one that, that was most prevalent in the media as I was beginning to write was this figure, Jihadi John. Now, Jihadi John, um, this was a nickname, and it was a nickname given to, uh, given by hostages in an ISIS prison to one of four British Jihadis who were keeping them prisoner. Um, all four Jihadis were named after the Beatles because of their accents. John became famous, obviously, because of the starring role that he took in the six execution videos uh, that he made where he was shown beheading U.S. journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, British aid workers David Haynes and Alan Henning, uh, Japanese self-styled security expert Haruni Yukawa, and his journalist friend Kenji Goto. Um, This figure, Jihadi John, was a... His real name was Mohammed Imwazi. Um, He was a British jihadi who'd gone to fight um, for Islamic State in Syria. And significantly, Imwazi did not give himself the name Jihadi John. Because he, in his mind, as was remarked at the time, he was a warrior and he would never have accepted being a banal John. The name Jihadi John was something that we applied to him. And I say we in the sense of the domestic populaces of Great Britain, um, because we wanted to create an enemy. We wanted to manifest him as a bogeyman. And it was really kind of ironic to a degree when, when, when Wazi was unmasked, as it were, when they finally figured out who he was, there was all of these news reports saying, well, why did he choose to do this? And kind of going into his history and looking for the thing that would have turned him against um, the West and would have driven him into the arms of jihadists. And what people failed to ask was, why did we need to turn him into a bogeyman? Why did we feel the need to create this nickname for him? And why did we feel the need to attempt to scare ourselves using that nickname? Um, Because, of course, to ask that question would have been to uh, realise publicly that the reason that we'd done it was in order to justify our own military reprisals against Islamic State and to hijack the panic that they were producing for our own purposes. Because Islamic State produced these videos in order to terrify their enemies and to um, to, to bring new recruits in. We figured out a way of distributing them in a way that would terrify... Islamic State's enemies in order to um, add strength and traction to the military reprisals that we were proposing. So we kind of harnessed the power of the uh, videos for ourselves without, I I argue, at any point um, respecting or considering the humanity of the people who were being killed. And so it was at this point that I became interested in images, because the the use of images in Islamic state was actually quite fascinating. The um, if you look at the ways in which the um, jihadi groups have developed over the last let's well since essentially the end of the Cold War, the beginnings of these kind of these jihadi groups think about the the um, the Taliban in Afghanistan. They're technophobes. They um, actively preach a return to the um, the ideals of early Islam, and therefore they shun the trappings of modern technology. When we got to Al Qaeda, um, particularly under Osama bin Laden these were this was a group that realized the power of images and of performance and so when they mounted the attacks on 9/11 they did so in a very openly theatrical way something that could be conceived of as a show and that could be recorded and distributed by western media and look like, look incredibly cinematic um, and that, and it worked, you know, the images of uh, of nine if eleven. You, if you even say the word 9-11, I'm, I'm willing to bet that anybody listening to this, the first thing you think of is the images of the towers with the planes either ha- crashing into them or having crashed into them. Um, after bin Laden, uh, there was a guy called Zakawi, Abu Musab al-Zakawi, who bin Laden um, officially recognised as the leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq, a- AQI. Now Zakawi uh, was a Jordanian street thug who started in, um, who kind of um, got a very, uh, ooh, ...technically savvy approach to the, to the maintenance and distribution of violence. And he encouraged his fighters to record their attacks and edit them together as, as films, and they would put incidental soundtracks of Islamic hymns on top of them and upload them to YouTube. This was 2004-2005, right as um, YouTube was being launched. And therefore, these videos could suddenly reach millions of people at the click of a button. ISIS, for what it's worth, regards Zarqawi as their first emir. Um, Zuck- it was also Zaqawi that advocated uh, the distribution of images as uh, of murder as a tool to entice new recruits, um, and as far as I can make out was also the person who first started promoting the vilification of Shia Muslims, because Shia Muslims were uh, the prime target of Islamic State, something that the Western media often failed to report. Um Zakawi was killed in a somewhat ironic twist when he recorded a video of himself holding a rifle in the air and shouting about a recent victory. American military operatives saw this video, figured out where he was standing, and they dropped a couple of bombs on him. Um, which is something that comes straight out of an Armando Iannucci film, but actually happened. Now, the person who created um, ISIS, Islamic State, uh, who is, as far as I'm aware, still alive at the time that I'm recording this episode, is a man named Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And Baghdadi also has a consummate understanding of performance, and more than that, he learned from the mistakes of his predecessor. Uh, For a decade after he was released from an American prison, uh, Baghdadi allowed no photographs to be taken of himself. He realised, A, the power of images, and also B, the danger of distributing images where his uh, location could be determined, and so he wore a mask in front of uh, everybody, including his most trusted lieutenants and earned himself the nickname the Invisible Sheikh, and then finally unveiled himself on the 29th of June 2014 when he appeared at the mosque in al-Nuri to declare the Islamic Caliphate reborn. Many of you listening to this will have seen the images and the videos from that uh, performance, from that, that sermon that he delivered. He also did this thing where he cleaned his teeth with a mizwak before he performed mizwaks, a, a stick, uh, which is what the Prophet Muhammad had done when he delivered a sermon at the same place. And it was a way of kind of um, demonstrating through performance his acceptance of the inheritance of the Prophet Muhammad to declare himself the new caliph. And uh, the organization that he ran, um, the Islamic State, had a grasp of technology and image distribution that rivaled most modern military organizations. They had Um, They they, they developed a point at which they had a dedicated propaganda wing. That they produced a monthly magazine, which is also an e-zine. They equipped their fighters with smartphones so that they could video attacks and stream them directly um, from battlefields. They recruited IT specialists. They even had this weird um, hacked version of Grand Theft Auto, which they called Clashing of Swords. uh, Which they used as a training aid and a recruitment exercise, where you could play a a jihadi fighter running around a battlefield with an AK-47 and Molotov cocktails and killing their enemies. They also, for what it's worth, used technology to make uh, a lot of money. They um, had a lot of people working for them doing identity theft and hacking. They also, there are stories of them directing foreign fighters to Google Maps because during their heyday, they had so many people arriving to fight for them, they couldn't uh, divert their resources and attention to make sure that everybody got to their destinations where they could fight. So they would give them a phone uh, with Google Maps on them and tell them to go to this location. And apparently, there are quite a lot of people that got lost as a consequence of this. Again, straight out of an Amanda Iannucci film. So, oh yeah, and there was something else they did was they would hijack Twitter storms. So when they were uploading videos of uh, murder propaganda, they would often include hashtags that would attach them to um, things like the vote for Scottish independence. They would include the vote yes and vote no hashtags so that they would then get bound up with those tweets. So this was a very kind of tech-savvy way of conducting terrorism, terrorist warfare, whether um, the, 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 using the term terrorism in conjunction with the Islamic State was a, was a subject of, of heated debate because for a while it looked like Islamic State were within shouting distance of creating what they considered to be a viable state. And if they were doing so, then um I think it was uh, Loretta Napoleone, Napoleone pointed out that they would have proven what all terror organizations had been claiming, which is that they were not a terror organization but a freedom fighters fighting an asymmetric war against um, oppressors. Obviously, this is not what happened, but the template that they established is something that is going to be incredibly important for terror organisations in the future. Um, But what I was concerned with when I was looking into all of this was the ways in which public and private spaces were being invaded with execution propaganda often distributed by, and the, thinking specifically about the, the propaganda that was created for Western audiences, because Islamic say they produce all kinds of different propaganda, and when they were producing propaganda for audiences in the Middle East, they were um, far more graphic. They, were, uh, they would include moments of killing, and often they would do things like uh, slow down in the moments of killing. When they produced uh, propaganda for us, for Britain, for France, for the United States, for Japan, it was almost always uh, it would have the, the, the moment of death taken out of it because they knew precisely how the videos were going to be distributed. And our politicians, David Cameron at the time as Prime Minister, said that he did not mind within limits uh, British audiences seeing a part of these propaganda videos. What he meant was he didn't mind people seeing them provided it didn't include images of dead bodies or of actual violence. Just, you know... Um, images of people who were about to die but the thing is the videos that they were releasing were not of people who were about to die they were of people who were already dead at the point at which the videos had been released so what we were watching when we watched these videos was somebody who was dead it was a reanimation of a corpse it was essentially a form of ventriloquism but nobody seemed to realize this Nobody actually seems to kind of talk about the horror that you experience upon watching a video of somebody whom you know is going to die and is already dead. And also the fact that by dramatizing this death, the killers make it seem inevitable, right? The victim is going to die and has already died because it is right, because it is within our power, because we have made it so. So without realizing it when they distribute videos of murder propaganda when they distributed them when when our uh, political and press institutions did that they were actually valorizing the power of their enemies and it felt monstrous it felt extraordinary that this kind of thing was invading our bedrooms the places where we keep our computers it was invading our pockets the place where we keep our mobile phones it was invading the public spaces where we go and sit and eat and drink it was invading the train stations anywhere where there was a screen and there are screens everywhere suddenly became a stage for islamic states propaganda and in some ways there was a, again an ironic twist for this because uh, jason burke the journalist pointed out that one of the reasons why the um propaganda the violent propaganda had begun was because um Islamic spaces in the Middle East had started being invaded with Western texts, Western um, softcore pornography, Western action films, Western news, which would demonstrate violence, and which would demonstrate with kind of in a a way that clashed absolutely with the cultures that were being invaded with this stuff. And so Burke's theory was that when uh, people like Zakawi and people like bin Laden were making murder propaganda, they were kind of turning the violence of the West or turning the the, um, appetite for violence on the part of Western spectators back on us. So having kind of thought about this in the way that the propaganda produced by Islamic State was being distributed by us um, for our own audiences, I started thinking more about um, audiences, the spectator, and about the relationship between the spectator and the image. And that's when the books kind of moved away from being about emergencies specifically and more to being about spectatorship. And I borrowed an idea from uh, the French philosopher Jacques Rancière here, which is what he calls an intolerable image. Now for Rancière, an image is an object that is designed to facilitate the response of a spectator and the interpretation of a spectator, and also to provide space for debate between spectators. There's something, the image, the spectator comes into contact with an image and they have some kind of a reaction or response to it. And other spectators have their own reactions or responses to it. And then this produces a kind of discourse between spectators. That is the way that he believes an image should function. Images become intolerable for Rancière when they are saturated with a predetermined meaning. When rather than having the ability to engage individually with an image, the spectator is told what the image means because this provides no space for debate, but it also provides no space for interpretation, Um, which is, of course, what propaganda is. It is where you present spectators with a thing and you tell them what it means. Now, for Ranciere, who says, actually, that a lot of modern media functions as propaganda, the idea of corralling or coercing or manipulating a spectator in this way is very dangerous because spectators learn to rationalise ourselves to define ourselves and to know ourselves by interpreting what we experience and witness. We can only know ourselves by uh, developing relationships with the world around us. And this is why, for him, spectating is our natural state. And so if the spectator is continually presented with images that have a predetermined meaning, then they are, we are prevented from learning and knowing ourselves. And this idea of preventing the spectator from uh, being able to learn and know ourselves became very important for the rest of the book where i started to look at instances where images were used within emergency narratives that attempted to manipulate us in a particular direction and a particularly vile example of this manipulation um i i kind of realized was in what has been generally called the, the refugee crisis now i i must say i don't like the term refugee crisis because I don't think that the word crisis refers to refugees, I think it refers to us. I think it refers to us fretting over an illusory lack of space within our domestic environments and also therefore um, giving power to organisations and ideologies that turn us against refugees. The most iconic photo, as far as I'm aware, in the refugee crisis is the one taken of Alan Cody, the Syrian boy who drowned. And his body washed up on a Turkish beach and was photographed by Lin- Nilufer Demir. I saw that image without realising I was going to see it. I-, I clicked on a Guardian website one night and it was just there. And it was something that once you've seen it, it's burned onto your brain. You can never unsee it. And it's been reproduced so many times that it's kind of ubiquitous now. The family, um, Alan Kurdi's family, did try to circulate an image of him alive with his most recent birthday cake, saying that we'd much rather our our, our child, our son, our nephew, and so on was was remembered in this way, but by that point it was too late, the image of his dead body had become emblazoned in our cultural memories. What was really quite upsetting, though, was that this image, which did uh, immediately precede a spike in Red Cross donations across um, Europe, was unable to maintain that kind of public sympathy for the plight of refugees, and six months later, there was another image that was released of Nigel Farage, the then leader of the far-right United Kingdom Independence Party, standing in front of a poster And the poster was uh, a late-stage gambit by the Leave campaign in the um, referendum for uh, Britain to leave the European Union or stay. And the poster had a long line of mostly non-white adult males uh, stretching out into the horizon, and the legend over the top of it was, Breaking Point, the EU has failed us all. So the idea was that these men, mostly, were uh, refugees who were coming to what? To take our jobs, to threaten us, to um, destroy our way of life, whatever it was. It was designed to terrify the spectator. It was a racist uh, and intolerant image that was saturated with explication. It was something that was presented to us and we were told what it meant. We would, the, and the way it did this was by presenting us the image without context. And because, of, you know, the image itself doesn't show anything of the, of the sort. As far as I'm aware, it wasn't even um, depicting the people that it was purporting to depict. But that didn't matter. All that mattered was the effect that it produced on the spectator. And that was incredibly powerful we were shown a threat and we were shown farage and we were shown farage as the force that can protect us from the threat it's exactly the same technique that donald trump president trump as he is now used in his address to the republican national congress when he was elected as their candidate for the american presidency and he said that americans uh, face violence on our streets um, many have seen the images of violence some have seen it in person some have been its victims and then he said i alone can save us and this is the power that is available through harnessing an emergency. Identify a threat, localize the threat, identify the people who are being threatened and propose yourself as the corollary, as the the means for addressing the threat. And you then can take the loyalty and the power afforded to you by that populace. The, um, the Trump campaign used another image that I analyze, um, which was a very strange image because it was just a bowl of Skittles. And the bowl of Skittles had a legend. It was tweeted by uh, President Trump's son, Donald Trump Jr. The legend was, if I told you that one of these was poisoned, would you take a handful? That is our Syrian refugee problem. Now, the Wrigley's company, who produces the Skittles uh, confectionery, said that um, the, the tweeted response saying, Refugees are people, uh, Skittles are sweets, we don't feel it's an appropriate comparison. But it didn't matter. Again, all that mattered was that the image had overwritten reality and had presented the spectator with this extraordinarily vile and simplified idea of what um, the refugee crisis actually was in order to justify the Trump administration's isolationist and racist policies against refugees. And the refugees themselves, of course, were kicked out of the picture. They weren't anywhere present within that image. What was particularly um, farcical about this was that the person who had taken the image of the Bull of Skittles themselves, the the image had been used without their consent, David Kittos, had had arrived in the UK as a refugee. So, this idea then that the way that emergencies are created for the spectator through the production, distribution and framing of images became a key subject of the book and something I talk about throughout. Um, And as I went on, I started looking at what happens when the spectator accepts the reality that is constructed for them by images, because up until that point, chapters one and two, looking at ISIS and the refugee crisis, I'd been mostly focusing on the ways in which the images were Uh, conceived and distributed. When it came to chapter three, I started looking at the ways in which spectators had been responding to images. And at at the extremities, the argument that I made was that if the spectator accepts the reality that is constructed for them by images, then they try to assimilate into that reality by making themselves into an image. And that ultimately that this process is a process of suicide. And so the images that I look in chapter three are images of people who have made themselves into an image through acts of suicide. So the other kind of side of the book, then, the the production and construction of images within emergency narratives is one half of what I'm looking at. The other half is how do we try to find ways of resisting this manipulation as spectators. And for this, I talk mostly about theatrical performance. Um, And I argue that theatrical performance can offer, can not, does but can offer a space for the deconstruction and critique of images, as well as trying to expose processes um, of the manipulation of the spectator. And this argument kind of runs from chapter two onwards. And I look in detail um, at pieces of work by playwrights such as Zinni Harris, Alice Birch, and Andy Duffy, as well as theatre collectives like Vanishing Point, uh, Force Entertainment, and Entre and Good. And um, there's kind of a uh, preoccupation in one of the chapters about rigged games. I, I realised there was a lot of work being done over the last couple of years in Scotland about uh, showing spectators rigged games, about what happens when you take away the ability to win a game and you put the spectator into that position anyway, because I, I kind of realised that this is essentially what an emergency is. It is a rigged game. It puts the spectator into, into a position where it says you are imperiled. You need to do something, but you can't do anything because you haven't got the power. All you can do is confer the power upon us and we will do something. And then, of course, in order to do something, we must isolate and denigrate them. In that situation, the spectator has apparently no choice. But in addition to this, in addition to thinking about rigged games and and manipulation, I was also surprised by the fact that storytelling became very important to me. And storytelling runs as a line through the book as well. And this is partly because um, I discovered that that Scotland does an excellent line in storytelling. I've only been here for, for four years Five, four and a half years. Um, And the oral tradition is is still very much alive and well here. There are storytellers practicing their craft up and down the country. There are storytelling centres. There's an excellent storytelling centre in Edinburgh called the Scottish Storytelling Centre on the Royal Mile. And if people listening to this have never been, I cannot recommend it heartily enough. It is one of the most life-affirming places, performance spaces that I have yet encountered. Personally, I basically think it should be on the NHS. Um, I'm deadly serious about this. I go and see storytelling shows and I come out just feeling better. Um, and so what I was interested in, what I became interested in, was the way in which stories always stand apart from their context. Stories are deliberately not immediately relevant to the a, a given situation, but rather um, stories that are told and retold and retold are retold because they contain ideas that people can choose to relate to in their own way. So it's, that, no, it's the Ranciere in the image again. It's the idea that um, the person listening to the story is presented with something that they actively interpret on their own terms and for themselves, and that that can then provide a space for debate and discourse and conversation as other people listening to the stories or retelling the stories are able to share these experiences with one another. And so there is a kind of mechanism within storytelling, and storytelling particularly thought of as an oral tradition, which helps to prevent against what Ranciere would call an intolerable saturation of a text with meaning, that you can't, that telling stories to people is not browbeating them into submission it's not kind of forcing them or trying to force them to a particular response it's taking time and languidly engaging with a narrative in a way that encourages them to respond on their own terms as such i argue in the book that storytelling stands in opposition to emergency emergency narratives um emergency narratives is what i call those the, the kind of the, the idea the, the codified uh emergency so islamic state and terrorism or um The refugee crisis. These are uh, frantic things in which the spectator is told that there is no time or thought or response or critique possible, but rather that they must act now. And that the only way that they can act now is by granting further authority to the people in power and by um, paying attention only to information that is directly related to that emergency. And stories are are not that. Stories are um, diffuse. Stories are things that are... that they that promote a sense of commonality and community. They are designed to be told around fires and in pubs, and they are things in which people commune. This, by the way, was pretty much the only positive aspect of the book, which is why I decided that I would give it some focus at the end of this episode. Um, Anyway, so that kind of... (laughs) I was going to say in a nutshell that's what the book is. It's not. There's so much that I haven't talked about. Um, The book kind of... uh, Includes as I said that this kind of a long discussion on suicide, but it also includes uh, discussions of tragedy and the ways in which I think Tragedy has needed to be rethought in the 21st century um, There is discussions of monologue performances and there's um, a lengthy discussion of um, the neighbor figure and uh, <laughs> And the biblical Old Testament essentially I had I ended up going in lots of different directions. Um and so the idea of trying to corral those in, into one uh, episode was something that was flawed from the outset. But hopefully this episode has given a flavour of the kind of research in which I was engaged and hopefully found it, I don't know, um, informative or absorbing in some way, shape or form. Um, I. So if you are thinking about buying the book, and I feel a bit weird saying this, but I, you know, this is... Um, Important to say, uh, the book is very expensive at the moment because it's in hardback and it's about 80 quid. I do have a discount code, um, if you are thinking of buying it, which is a 50% discount, which will be valid until the 30th of November 2019. I'll put the code on the Facebook page and I'll stick it up on Twitter as well. The code is OTH839, OTH839, and the OTH are in caps. And if you go onto the Manchester University website and buy it from them, then you can add the code to the checkout uh, before you pay, and that should get you 50% off. If it doesn't, please contact me, and I will contact the publishers, and I will ask them what's going on, but I've been uh, I've been assured by them that this will work. Uh, the book will hopefully be out on paperback, but not for a year or two, so, and by that point it will be less expensive, but if you are thinking about buying a hardback copy, please use the discount code. Um, anyway, uh, thank you for listening. I hope that, as I've said, this has been of interest, and... Again, I'm indebted to everybody who has listened to Stage Weather over the years and has helped to shape the ideas that have um, formed this book. It feels weird, but it also feels quite good to be able to record this episode. <laughs> like, it's done! Finally done it! And I can now move on to other stuff. Um, I hope you're all doing well and that you're enjoying yourselves and that you have beautiful days after you've listened to this, whatever it is that you're doing. The song I'm about to play you is One More Bro- Poet and is by Polly Edwards. All right. Bye.